It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him, saying, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. So you made it to the grand finale of our series in the book of Genesis. It's been 30 teachings through 50 chapters in the book of the beginnings or origins. And today is the dramatic conclusion to that story. But remember, this book is really just part of a series, the first part of a series that we call the Bible. And the Bible is one big grand narrative that theologians call the story of God or the mission of God. By that we mean that over thousands of years, God is saving the world that's been corrupted by evil, and he's restoring his original good design in the garden paradise. So God is not done until all of heaven and all of earth is under his reign of peace. And just like with a lot of really great literature and film, the story of Genesis ends on a cliffhanger. At a really dramatic sort of point in the story, the story just ends unresolved and uncompleted. So like, just like the, maybe the Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo are like taken by Gollum at the end of Two Towers or the epic battle uh, at the Stone Table in the Chronicles of Narnia or at the end of Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> Apparently, I, I don't know, I've actually never seen Star Wars. Um, I just Googled epic cliffhangers in Western movies. <laughs> The best part of never seeing Star Wars is how furious it makes people. It's just, it's amazing. For years, my friends have been like, dude, you've never seen Star Wars? You have to see Star Wars. Got to come over to my place and watch Star Wars all night. I go, no, sounds like a terrible idea. Don't want to do it. And maybe I would enjoy Star Wars, but I guarantee you, it would not be more enjoyable than watching people get furious at me for not having seen it. It's amazing. It's just my little, like, little trick for not understanding cultural references. Before people make fun of you, you just like, make fun of the thing that they're referencing, and it works. It's not Christ-like, but it works. <laughs> so Genesis ends on a cliffhanger. Important plot points of the story just are left unresolved, and that creates a lot of tension and anticipation. 
For example, the story begins in the Garden of Eden, but it ends in Egypt, the anti-garden, where the people of God are enslaved for 400 years. The story begins with God and humans living in perfect harmony and peace, but it ends with scandal and jealousy and hatred and famine and death. We've also seen this like really sort of beautiful thread of redemption where God has made a promise to bless the, the families of the earth through Abraham's family. And Joseph, four generations later, is a shining example of what God is capable of through faithful covenant partners. But at the moment, evil still seems to be spreading much more effectively than good is spreading. And at the end of his life, Jacob, he blesses his 12 sons and he prophesies over one of his sons named Judah. And he says that his line will become like a lion, the royal tribe that God will use to fulfill his plan to restore the garden promise. But Judah is not a king. He dies a refugee in a foreign land. His sons and his grandsons are slaves. And this is just how Genesis ends, on a cliffhanger. And we're left to wonder, how will God ultimately overcome evil with good? How is he going to have victory over evil? And when you think about it, this is actually a really cool literary device for those of us who are like English or literature nerds in the room. It's really cool. This is like fantastic literature. And I hope that you get this sense as you're reading this that all of this unresolved drama is actually kind of comforting because we're living in an unfolding story. There's lots of plot points that are left unresolved in our, in our lives too. There's conflict, there's tension, there's uncertainty. There are big epic challenges that are in front of you. And when you read the Bible, I think you'll find a really deep solidarity with the characters in these stories. They're human. Like us, they fail. They, they, they sometimes are weak. But then we can also see the beautiful thread of God's redemption, just like in the story of Genesis and throughout the whole story of the Bible, it's also woven through your story too. God is redeeming things. In spite of my weakness, in spite of my failure, God still loves me for me. He still loves me. He still determined to rescue and save me. And his glory and his power is somehow being revealed through my life. Now, none of this takes away from the hardship that you may be feeling in your life right now, but it does give meaning to your struggle and meaning to your hardship. So let me just show you how this works. The story goes like this. Joseph is promoted by God to become a great ruler in Egypt. We've been talking about this the past couple of weeks. And because of all of his prophetic wisdom, he single-handedly rescues human civilization from a global food crisis. And then because God is a God of reconciliation, he also reunites Joseph with his brothers. So for example, the last time Joseph saw his brothers, it was 20 years prior, and they had taken his clothes, they had sold him into slavery for 30 pieces of silver, and now they're bowing down before him in his palace. It's like a very dramatic turn in the story. So this is like the perfect opportunity for Joseph to live out his revenge fantasy. He could have taken their clothes. He could have taken their silver with interest and thrown them into a pit for a few years like they did to him. But instead, he, he does the opposite. He does not repay evil for evil. He repays them, their evil, for grace and generosity. He gives them clothes. He gives them 300 pieces of silver. In other words, 10 times as much silver as they sold him for. Right? We talked about this last week that screenplay writers of modern action thrillers would say, like, where's the payback storyline to all of this? Where do the villains get their violent retribution in return for all of their evil? Like Taken or John Wick or the Avengers or like Thousand Bond movies, right? 
Well, that's just not the story. That's not the story of the Bible. That's not the story that God is writing. Retributive acts of violence are not real acts of power. In fact, they're just more weakness. They're more evil. Divine power is the opposite. It's showing grace. So this story is proof that showing grace is a way more powerful act than an act of vengeance because we're still talking about Joseph and God accomplishes incredible things through Joseph's life. It's riskier, it's definitely riskier to show grace and forgiveness instead of taking vengeance. It requires a lot of restraint and it takes meekness and and, and character, but it results in the spreading of God's blessing. So next, Joseph moves his father. Here's what happens sort of leading up to today, right? Joseph moves his father, his brothers, and all of their families to Goshen, which was the best land in all of Egypt. And they lived there together, about 70 of them, for 15 years. And where we picked up the story today, Jacob, so Joseph and the brother's father, has just died. And they went through a long season of mourning, and now they're sort of carrying on with life in Egypt. And this is what happens. In verse 15, it says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, well, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. So please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. So in other words, they're saying this, like this whole, the brothers are rationalizing what's going on in their life story now. This whole like repaying evil with radical generosity, eh, it's just like too good to be true. What if Joseph's forgiveness was insincere? And what if he was just sort of letting us off the hook temporarily out of honor for dad? And now that dad's gone, what if he chooses to use his position of power to get his revenge after all? And that's what the brothers are thinking. And so what they do is they send a message to him by proxy. They're so worried they don't even trust Joseph enough to face him, like to work it out face to face, which is kind of lame if you ask me. It's lame, but I think we see it all the time in our world today too. We live in a culture that's really conflict averse. Rather than dealing with our issues with people heads on, we opt for like talking about them behind their backs or passive aggression or something like that. But passive aggression, I think, is extremely toxic. If you're friends with somebody who's always talking negatively about other people when they're with you, it's uncomfortable and it really erodes trust because you always have this like sinking suspicion that when they're with their other friends, they're also talking about you. And in a lot of cases, that's exactly correct. It's what's happening. And the results are really dramatic. They're they're, they're terrible. It results in really fragile relationships. We have lots of casual bonds, but not really any deep relationships. And so we miss out on opportunities to grow, to reconcile, and to truly trust each other. And so we need some sort of alternative, right, to passive aggression if we're going to grow. And the teachings of Jesus offer us a much, much better way of dealing with personal conflict. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. So in other words, in your relationship with God, the rhythms of worship that you keep will reveal what's going on in your heart, including the issues that you have with people in your life. 
And what Jesus is saying is that your worship isn't over until you face that person and seek to make it right. Now, we talked last week that forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is always possible because all it does is it depends on you. Reconciliation depends on both people coming to the table, and that can be tricky. If you have more questions about that, please go back and listen to the sermon from last week. But I've experienced this in my own life. In fact, we were talking uh, as, as a group at Rivermen at Night a few weeks ago about obstacles to prayer and why it is that we want to spend time with God, we want to enjoy him in prayer, but for whatever reason, we find ourselves putting it off often. And what I've found in my life is that when I'm avoiding God in prayer, it's usually because there's something like this in my life. There's someone or there's something else that I'm avoiding. And I know, because I have a relationship with God, that as soon as I go to him in prayer, that thing is just going to come like right to the surface and I'm going to have to deal with it. And so one of my coping mechanisms is to just sort of distract myself from all of that. But then ultimately I come back to center and I realize, you know what, no, the Lord wants me to be in communion with him and if I'm going to be in communion with him then I need to be able to practice forgiveness in my relationships. So you may need wisdom from your counselors if you're dealing with some sort of broken relationship in your life right now and you may need advice from me or a spiritual director or something like that, that's wonderful. But don't slander and gossip. Don't talk badly about people behind their backs. That's the scripture is teaching us a much better and different way. So instead, maybe have your conversations with a trusted person and then go to that person directly and seek to make peace. And that's exactly what Joseph does in this story, which I think is incredible. More on that as we go along. So the brothers, what the brothers do is they cook up a story uh, that they tell the messengers to tell Joseph. They're like, oh, by the way, you know, before dad died, he said, hey, don't get even with your brothers. They just made it up. That's, there's no record of Jacob actually saying that. In fact, Joseph and Jacob had a great relationship to the end. So Jacob could have easily told Joseph that. Again, this is just another sort of weak attempt by the brothers to make peace. They're not being honest. They're not facing Joseph head on. They're not really remorseful about what they've done. All they're really doing is looking after themselves, watching after their own skin. This is kind of reminds me of what it's like to like, be a parent and try and reconcile your two children, right? Where I say, okay, we're going to offer forgiveness to each other. And Judah's like, I'm sorry, Isabel, you know, like in that tone. <laughs> and then Isabel's all, I'm sorry you didn't get the joke, Judah. Like, it just, it's like, technically, it's reconciliation, but not really at all. And that's really what the, the brothers are doing. But how does Joseph respond to all this? That's the, that's the real question. He is the sort of archetype of maturity that we're looking towards. And he's the bigger man. And, and, and again, at multiple different t- points, but particularly here at the end of his life, he takes the high road with his brothers once again. So here's what it says. Uh, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. He wept. And his brothers came then and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you, and I'll take care of your children as well. This is brilliant. So incredible. Despite the very weak attempt by his brothers, Joseph comes through and proves again that his forgiveness in the first place is sincere. I think it's very ironic and super interesting that Joseph 
um, when he was 17, he had a dream that his brothers were going to bow down to him. And that's what got him into slavery in the first place. He, his brothers hated him for it. He said, we're never going to bow down to you, man. And they sold him off into slavery. Now, for the fourth time that we read in the story of Genesis, they are bowing down before him. But Joseph says, hey, you guys don't have to do that. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. You can stand up. You're my brothers. I'm not going to treat you. I'm not going to mistreat you. This is a beautiful turn of events. His forgiveness is sincere. Now, of course, there's a ton going on here, and I promise to land the plane, but I need to explain the verse that scholars agree summarized the latter chapters of Genesis. It's that verse 20. And the ESV translates verse 20 like this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So the meaning here is, is pretty straightforward, but there's tons of debate in the church about what this actually means. So essentially the summary is this, that the brothers had evil intent. They were motivated by their jealousy and their hatred, and they sold Joseph into slavery. But God had planned all along that Joseph would save their generation from this famine. So God sort of worked it out that good prevails over evil. And you've heard me say that this is an extremely important verse in how we understand God's redemption. I also think that this is the heart of intercession. Intercession is when we pray for God to move and act in our world. So like when we pray, for example, for God to heal my sister-in-law of cancer, or you from your chronic illness, or for your broken relationship, or something else that you need. When we're asking God, what we're saying is, God, will you please overcome this evil with good? Will you change the course of history? Will you do good in place of this evil? But this verse also opens up a massive conversation about God's providence or how God is working in the world. Is he active? Does he care about me? And of course, the closely connected question, if God is good, then why is there so much evil in the world? And I know a lot of the stories here in this room, and I know that there is a lot of brokenness and hurt and pain that many of you are walking through. And so this is a very relevant question, and the Bible wants to answer that question for you, at least in part. And this verse speaks directly to where God is in relationship to all of the evil that happens specifically to Joseph. Now, the determinist view, there's not going to be a quiz, you don't have to remember that, but a lot of our Reformed brothers and sisters hold to a determinist view. They say it's actually really simple. God wanted this evil to happen to Joseph, and of course the brothers are involved, but really everything that happened happened by what they call divine decree. And when you look at the scripture, this scripture in particular, and also uh, several scriptures in the latter part of Isaiah, you can see how people have come to that conclusion about how God rules over the world. However, there are some really, really big problems with this view that I think we need to address. Number one, it's out of character for God to plan evil for people. 1 John 2.16 says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but comes from the world. So there's nuance here. There's nuance to this whole thing. It's not incredibly simple. So it was the brothers who had malice. They were the ones who had pride. They were the ones who had hatred and jealousy for Joseph, not God. Also see 1 John 1.5, it says this, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Word. 
That's who God is. That's what he's like. So the determinist view states that everything that happens from Hurricane Ida to every stray bullet to human trafficking, it's all a part of God's plan. And a surprising amount of evangelicals believe this, hold this view. They, they may not know that they hold it or that their church holds it or whatever, but a lot of times here's how this plays out. When people don't know what, how to make sense of all of the evil in the world and they don't know how to care for people who are going through this kind of evil, we end up just using platitudes. People say things like, it's all a part of God's plan or everything happens for a reason which there are some definite elements of truth in those statements, but it's sort of squashing out the biblical nuance. And if I can be perfectly frank, as someone who's been through a fair amount of suffering myself, it just is hurtful to hear that when you're going through pain. It's a hurtful way to process what's going on. And there is actually something more here that we need to see. I think the more importantly, it misses the point that Joseph is making in Genesis 50, and it's actually indicting God of things that he's not responsible for, and I wanna show you how the scriptures make this really clear. By the way, first of all, if this verse was saying that God decreed evil like, uh, like what Joseph was experiencing, it would only be speaking to that one event and not all events, right? It's just telling, it's a retelling of what happened, and determinists believe that it's sort of speaking to all events, that God has divinely decreed every kind of evil that we see in the world. But to say that God decrees all evil, it just misses the point of the context of Genesis completely. What did God plan? God planned Eden. He designed the garden paradise where there was goodness and delight and flourishing, what the Bible calls shalom or his peace. That's God's plan. Evil is what happens to the world after Adam and Eve reject God's vision and rebel against him. Hebrew scholar, a, a, a guy by the name of Cornelius Plantinga Jr., he wrote a book on sin called A Breviary of Sin. It's fantastic. I highly encourage that you read it. Who knew that a book on sin would actually be enjoyable to read? But it, really, it actually really is super good, super helpful, I think. He says this, The story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God has joined together and joins together what God has put asunder. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back toward the formless void from which it came. It's all Genesis 1 and 2 language there. Therefore, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, more substantially because it violates shalom because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. So therefore, evil by definition is what happens when we reject God's will and when we reject his design. It's not the way that things are supposed to be. Now, of course, it's true that God knew what would happen before the foundations of the world, and he created us anyways. And it also is true to say that that, does, that God does not shield us from all of the consequences of sin and evil in the world, which, of course, opens up all kinds of other questions. But God planned the order, the beauty, and the good that's in the world. He's not the God of disorder and chaos. That's what the scriptures tell us. So then how, how do we make sense of it all? How did it all go wrong, and why is it still, at least in part, wrong today? Well, here's why. We are living in contested space. There are many other wills at play in the world besides just God's will. We have our will, 
Sometimes we do good, other times we do evil, and there are consequences either way. Just for example, for the sake of argument, if I betray my wife's trust, Grace's trust, she's hurt. My relationship with her is broken or it's severed. It affects my kids, it affects the ministry, it affects my community, and on down the list. God does not want that to happen. That is the consequence of sin. And God can use it for good. That's the point of Genesis 50 and Romans 8 and all kinds of other scriptures. God can use it for good, but that's not what God wanted. God wanted Eden. He wanted flourishing. He wanted shalom. And that's what he is aggressively and in an expert, God-like way he is doing. He is redeeming. But we are living in this contested space. There's also corrupt systems in the world. There's also the spiritual forces of darkness, the devil, which we don't talk about very often, but he is working in the world as well. Ephesians 6, 11. And the kingdom of darkness is rivaling God's good design, and they're actively trying to take it and pull it apart. So when I'm looking at a family who's under the attack of the enemy or who's been cursed or has spiritual darkness of some kind in their life, I'm not saying to them, it's all a part of God's plan. Not because I'm being polite, because it's not a part of his plan. It's not what he wants. Jesus taught us to pray. In his seminal teaching on how to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, he says this. At the very center of that prayer, he says, pray this way. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, what he's saying, Jesus is saying, that God's will is not being completely done on earth as it is completely being done in heaven. Now it was before the fall, and it will in the new creation, but now life is a mixture of God's will and other people's will because we're living in a contested space. Now that solves a part of the problem of determinism, but still the fact remains that God, and this is what people are wrestling, this is what people wrestle through. By the way, one of the reasons why we're going into this is because I feel like it's probably one of the most common questions that I get as a pastor, and here we are in the scripture that talks directly about it. So, the fact remains, God knew the evil intent of Joseph's brothers. He knew the hardship it would cause him for decades, and instead of stopping that evil from happening, which of course he could have done, instead, we're told that he plans, or he intends, to use his brother's evil intent to accomplish a good result. In other words, God is able to outmaneuver the evil intent, and he's able to bring about a very positive, redeemed, godly, beautiful result. Right? That's exactly what is going on here with Joseph. Many lives are saved because of what his brothers intended for evil, but God intended for good, including his own family. Joseph's character has also been completely reformed and tested. He's ready for real leadership because of all of the obstacles that he faced. There's real reconciliation between his brothers. And then, of course, God is famous throughout Egypt because this Hebrew guy is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all really, really good and beautiful stuff that God is up to through his life. So naturally... We want to know the answer to the why question, right? Uh, That's kind of our cultural conception. We always want to know why. Why God chooses to do it like this. And I understand that. We, like, for example, we wonder why, like, why didn't God just, like, send Joseph down to Egypt because his, like, favorite band was playing Cairo or something like that? Or, like, maybe he wanted to paddleboard the Nile River, right? 
Like, why did there have to be like human trafficking involved in order to get Joseph to uh, Egypt, right? Like, this is the kind of question that we ask. And so we want to know why doesn't God do it differently? Now I think what we're doing is venturing into questions that we are not capable of truly answering. There's lots of still mystery in, in, in the scripture because our, wis- our, our wisdom is limited and we're not God. So Isaiah and uh, Job and, and many other places warn us against trying to take God's place as the judge. So ultimately we, have, we come to this conclusion that we are not capable of judging right from wrong completely well, perfectly, and all of that. And so therefore we do not indict God uh, for something we wish he did differently. But the invitation for us is to trust in God's goodness, to learn everything that we can learn about him, to experience God's goodness, and then to trust that he is completely good. That being said, the par- part of the answer has to be this. That in God's grand narrative, he has some compelling reason for using suffering and evil for the sake of his ultimate good. Because he's the one who willingly takes the worst of it for our sake. See, God has not insulated himself from evil. He experiences it all himself. Joseph is a type of Christ. He endures great hardship over many years, comes out the other side, and he says, listen, I am not the one to judge God. Who am I to question him? God sent me here to bless all of these families. Look at all of the good that God has done through all of this evil. And yet, his suffering pales in comparison to the suffering of Christ. Jesus was completely sinless. He willingly embraced his cross. The scriptures tell us he despised the shame of that. And he was executed at the hands of the Romans. Even though... Jesus had the power to come down off of the cross in the greatest act of love in history. He stayed. Here's the crazy part. is that God knew it would happen this way before the foundations of the world, and he created Eden anyways. He gave you free will anyways. And in the language of Romans 8, he did not spare his only son, although when he created it all back in the beginning... He knew that evil would interfere with his plan, and he knew that Jesus would have to go to the cross, and yet he created it all anyway. So the real problem of evil is that God doesn't insulate himself from it, but he actually becomes incarnate. He shows up right into the middle of all of the world's brokenness. And at the crux of human history, he takes the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. And then he proceeds to conquer death. Come on, y'all. That is good. That is what God is doing. So he doesn't give us why evil in all of its, in, in a full answer. But he does say, I will show up in midst the evil, and I will make it right. I will redeem it. And that is extremely profound. So this moment that Joseph is saying these words, here's what he knows. He knows that God had used him to save people from the famine in his generation, but he has virtually no idea about how God is going to use his story and how his story is connected to the grand narrative of God saving the world through Jesus. Like he's got some vague promises about 
God sending a snake-crushing hero from Genesis chapter 3, and he's also got his dad's poem about Judah's descendants of royal lions from chapter 49. And yet, God is writing a much bigger story with much broader implications for the whole world and for all generations, including us today. And his life is like perfectly foreshadowing and setting up the kind of savior that the world desperately needs. We need a leader who serves. We need a leader who's humble. We need a leader who uh, is willing to absorb and take unfair treatment and release grace instead. And we are reading his story thousands of years later and celebrating the witness of Joseph. And we're doing that because he, at the end of the day, trusted God that what his brothers meant for evil God was able to redeem for good because he trusted, he was willing to trust him and he stepped deeper into that trust. So he's playing an active role, which as we close, we're going to get into that. We have a lot more of the story than Joseph had of the story when he was living, living his life and, we, and when he said those words to his brothers. We have a lot more of the story. But similarly, we are still living in a world that has a lot of gaps in the plot line of how God is redeeming the earth, the story that God is writing, there's still a lot of gaps. Like for example, we don't know about my sister-in-law's cancer. Is this a part of God's plan to glorify himself by healing her? Or is this just another random natural evil? We, we don't know. We don't know about your chronic illness or your broken relationship, how the story will end. We don't know about your mental illness or why human trafficking on such a global scale or something like that. And yet, like Joseph, we do have the profound power of choice. There is still a lot that is still under the realm of your control. You can choose to make the focus of your life looking, focused on looking for God's power in overcoming evil with good. See, if you're focused on yourself, on you, if you're focused on the evil itself, you're actually going to end up missing completely what God wants to do. But if the focus of your life is on the reality that God did not spare his own son from the effects of evil, maybe then God, in fact, wants to use your unfolding story and even the parts you don't understand in his much larger mission to save the world. And the evil that you're experiencing, God is going to use it for his ultimate good. A couple of years ago, I read the most definitive book in my life besides the Bible. It's a, book, it's a book written by Dr. Jerry Sitzer. It's called A Grace Disguised, and he's a theologian out of Spokane. And uh, back in the 1980s, he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in the same car accident. He was the driver. Him and a few of his kids walked away. And a couple of years later, he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised that was sort of uh, the community around him said, you've got to share this story. And what he ended up sharing was like part memoir of his family and part theology of suffering. And to this day, if you're going through any kind of grief or loss or suffering, A Grace Disguised, it's the book you want. I mean, you, you don't have to read anything besides that. It's literally the best thing that's out there. I've read a bunch of them. It's the best thing that's out there. And in it, he's really still actively wrestling with what had happened to his family and how tragic it was. And this is what he has to say. He says, I simply do not see the bigger picture, but I choose to believe that there is a bigger picture and that my loss 
is part of some wonderful story authored by God himself. Sometimes I wonder about how my own experience of loss will someday serve a greater purpose that I do not yet see or understand. My story may help to redeem a bad past or bring about a better future. Perhaps my own family's heritage has produced generations of absent and selfish fathers, and I have been given a chance to reverse that pattern. Perhaps people suffering catastrophic loss will one day look to our family for hope and inspiration. I do not know, yet I choose to believe that God is working towards some ultimate purpose, even using my loss to that end. And when I read that, it was like God was healing me. Many of you guys know Grace and my story. Eight years ago, we lost our daughters, Hope and Brielle, at the day of their birth. They were 35 weeks, gestational age. There were some issues with our daughter Hope um, in the womb, in utero, but they made it to 35 weeks, and it looked like maybe we were going to be taking home healthy babies or at least one healthy baby. And then all at once, on Mother's Day, 2015, we lost them in an instant. And that was the first real significant bout of suffering that I ever had as a kid growing up in the suburbs of Portland and you know, having a pretty privileged life. And so um, in some ways, it just was the best thing for us. And in other ways, it was just horrific. And what happened to me is I just kind of went into the mode of caring for my wife and caring for my three-year-old daughter, Isabel, at the time. And I was just un inadvertently, unknowingly, just sort of stuffing everything that I was feeling. And over time, I just began to feel nothing at all. No highs, no lows. I was just suppressing all emotion, and I became fairly robotic. Around the same time, we were also planting Riverbend. And so I was throwing myself into my work as well. And it's probably a story you've heard something similar from others before. I just didn't know how to process my grief. And as a man, I thought I just had to kind of keep my crap together and take care of everyone around me. And so it got to a, an inflection point about when I discovered this book where I like couldn't go on any further. I was just completely at a loss. There's lots of really beautiful and good things happening all around me, but I was just losing my will, losing my desire, losing myself, and not really knowing how to even talk about the pain that I was walking through. And then I read this book, and I read those lines, and it actually began to awaken something in me. It was beautiful. That story's actually come full circle now. This last summer, Grace and I got to meet Dr. Sitzer, at a conference that we were at. And I just find it so poetic that we got to sit down with him over lunch and we got to tell him the details of our story and we got to tell him how his story, that at the time that he wrote it had no idea, would actually speak to future families going through grief and loss, how it had profoundly affected my life. If it had not been for Dr. Sherry's, Dr. Jerry Sitzer's book, I don't know if I would still be pastoring here. It's probably not very likely that I would be still standing here before you today as your pastor. So just like he said, I don't know how God may choose to use my story in order to influence and to help others, but I would argue we are all being helped by that story 
of his loss. And the story of your loss may have a similar effect and impact in the world as well. Notice how he closes this, that, that, that chapter. He says, our lives are a great landscape that extends far beyond what the eye of our experience can see. Who knows how one experience so singularly horrible can set in motion a chain of events that will bless future generations. Loss may appear to be random, but that does not mean that it is. It may fit into a scheme that surpasses even what our imaginations dare to think. So the choice that we have is deciding whether we will trust God in what we cannot see and what we cannot understand about our life. Another choice that we have is deciding whether or not to participate in God's grand narrative. See, my argument is this. We can see God's pattern. We know God's pattern. What does God want to do? He wants to overcome evil with good. That is what the main plot line of the Bible is. So therefore, if we know that that is what God wants to do, then we can participate. We can join in. We can play a supporting role in the redemption of all things. Even if there's plenty that we still can't understand, even if there's part of our story that doesn't make sense to us today, and yet we still are being invited to cooperate. Will you join God in the redemption of all things by choosing to overcome evil with good? And I think the answer is we absolutely can and we should be doing that. Joseph participates with God in at least four ways. Here they are as we close. He chooses, and I think we ought to choose as well, sorrow over cynicism. See, when his brothers, 15 years later, come back to him, questioning his sincerity, Joseph weeps. He says, you guys aren't still convinced? You guys don't trust my heart? Even after all of this time. So he's emotionally connected. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And the alternative is just becoming hard-hearted or divested in your relationships. But Joseph is uh, continuing to stay invested. And instead, he is... Uh, he's invested, he's lamenting, he's contending. He's saying, this is not how it's supposed to be, but I'm not giving up the fight. I'm not growing cold-hearted. I'm not throwing in the towel and saying humanity is lost. I am actually contending for God to do his thing. And this is an attitude that we need to cultivate in the church today. I'm so sick and tired of all of the talk about, oh, you know, the church is all just doomed and the world's going to hell and humanity is lost and Western culture is dead and blah, blah, blah. no. Like, we're all here. Do we have the Spirit of God or not? Did Jesus raise from the dead or not? Are we his children or not? Did he make us all these promises or not? Well, then if he did, then it's not dead. We're here. We're alive. We've been given the, 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 the promise of the kingdom. So don't give in to that way of thinking, that feudalistic, fatalistic way of thinking. Don't give in to it. Choose to, to grieve the evil in the world, but don't grow cynical that it's all evil. It's not. God has a beautiful thread of redemption that he is weaving. And we could choose to see that. Joseph was in the minority. He was able to see that. You can also choose to see that. And I challenge you to see that. Number two, he chooses forgiveness over vengeance. See, his brothers are bowing down before, them, before him again. And he says, you guys can get up. You guys can get up. I don't need you to bow before me. It's all right. I, I have forgiven you. And this is the pattern that we see with Jesus, and Jesus teaches us that we ought to practice forgiveness as well. 
And there's much more that we said about that last week, but we need to choose that over and again. In my experience, the people that I have really hurt me in my life, forgiveness one time is often not what I need. I often need to offer forgiveness multiple times because resentment and hurt feelings return to me. And so I need to practice forgiveness all over again. Number three, he practices kindness over contempt. He's the, we didn't read it today, but he spoke kindly to them. He goes over the top of all of their fear by extending kindness. And that's not something that he had to do, but he chose to do it. He was choosing the high road, going over top of all of that, which I think is wonderful and beautiful. And then finally, he chose hope over despair. Hope over despair. He could have chosen to see his experience any number of ways. There was tons of evil in his life. And he could have given in to that spirit of just complete and utter despair, but he doesn't. He dies a man of hope. He dies a man of hope. He's saying, you know, you guys intended all that stuff for evil, but look what God did through it. That's choosing to, to hope and not despair. We also discover that he never forgets his true home. What's beautiful about the very end of Genesis, he's giving instructions to his descendants when they are delivered out of Egypt and going back to the land of Canaan. He says, don't leave me here. This isn't where I belong. This isn't where I'm destined to stay. You gotta take me back to the land that God promised our forefathers. So although he had been, become great in Egypt, he never forgot his true home. And I think that's our, that's our invitation as well is to recognize that in a way we're, we're foreigners, we're in exile here. Although we find ourselves very much at home in Bend, Oregon, it's a beautiful, idyllic place to live. But according to the book of Philippians, we're like a colony of heaven. That's where our true citizenship lies. And that's where we are headed. And that's what we ultimately fix our hope. And right before the gathering started today, a group of us, the worship team and kids workers and a bunch of us, we were gathered together, we were praying. And I think that was the, the, that was the thing that came to the surface the most as we were just listening for God's voice, was that he wants to awaken in you and I a hunger for the coming kingdom, for the day, excuse me, for the day when God redeems all things and makes all things new. That is where our hope lies. It's in the future. It's when Jesus promised will one day happen. This is our hope, friends. And as we close this, this, cha- this chapter and the end of Genesis, we recognize that this end is really a, another beginning. And although Joseph and the others don't have a clear sense necessarily of how the plot is unfolding, specifically for future generations, They are committed to trust God through it all anyways. And I just want to challenge you with that too. Will you trust God with the parts of your story that don't make sense now? And will you choose to ultimately believe that God is redeeming all things for good? And that he's using your story to tell the larger story of how he's rescuing and saving the world. Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that although the world has plenty of evil all around us, we do see how you are redeeming it for good. 
we do thank you for how you planned for Eden. And the new creation is just another version of that perfect reign of shalom where all of us will be gathered as your people, as your children. And I pray that you would awaken in us, Lord, just this determination, this this decision, this resilient hope, this resilient faith. That although we're not you and we can't understand all things, we can trust you with what you've revealed to us about yourself. You are a good God. You have planned good for us. You are an expert at taking things that are broken and messed up and making them beautiful again. You do that. And we want to join you in it. We want to take part. We want to participate in what you are doing. So empower my friends in the name of Jesus by your Holy Spirit. Would you empower us, God, to go into the world and, and play along with the grand narrative that's unfolding. Help us, God, and empower us to overcome evil with good. God, we choose sorrow and emotional connectedness over cynicism. We choose forgiveness over vengeance. We choose hope over despair. So as we close, I encourage you to come to the tables and we're going to take communion together after this next song. This remembrance of all that Jesus has done for us. Lord, we love you and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.